0: If you would, please open your Bibles to 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 18, and if you stand, I'll be reading verses 1 through 19, and then we'll actually be uh, discussing verses 20 through 41, and yes, it is a little different than we have been doing, uh, but it seems as we stand here at the end of 2023, at the beginning of 2024, to spend a couple of uh, Sunday mornings just considering how it is that we walk into this new year confronting our culture with the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, and really living in such a way that causes our those around us to see the greatness of our Savior. And I've been doing this series with the youth. I did about 25 uh, messages on Elijah. And it just seems like a, a great way to start our new year together as a congregation to consider how it is that that the, that our Lord will show himself powerful in this coming year. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1. Now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying... Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. For when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water. Then Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we will find grass and keep the horses and mules alive and not have to kill some of the cattle. So they divided the land between them to survey it. Ahab went one way by himself and Obadiah went another way by himself. Now as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him and he recognized him and fell on his face and said, is this you, Elijah, my master? He said to him, it is I. Go, say to your master, behold, Elijah is here. He said, what sin have I committed that you are giving your servant into the hand of Ahab to put me to death? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my, where my master has not sent to search for you. And when they said he is not here, he made the kingdom or nation swear that they could not find you. And now you are saying, go, say to your master, behold, Elijah is here. It will come about when I leave, leave you that the spirit of the Lord will carry you where I do not know. So when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told to my master what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, that I hid a hundred prophets of the Lord by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water? And now you are saying, go, say to your master, behold, Elijah is here. He will then kill me. Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is this you, you troubler of Israel? He said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. Now then, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Please be seated. Now, authors Michael Graham and Jim Davis wrote in 2023 a popular book called The Great de and they say this, it's an extended quote, as a nation, we've, we're currently experiencing the largest and fastest religious shift in the history of the United States. Tens of millions of formerly regular Christian worshipers nationwide have decided they no longer desire to attend church at all. These are who we now call the dechurched." About 40 million adults, 16% in America today, used to go to church but no longer do. For the first time in the eight decades that Gallup has tracked American religious membership, more adults in the United States don't attend church than attend church. This isn't a gradual shift. It's a jolting one. They go on to say... What we've witnessed in the past 25 years is a religious shift of about 1.25 times larger in the opposite direction than the religious growth of previous periods in American history. More people have left the church in this period than all the new people who became Christians from the first great awakening, great awakening, second great awakening and all the Billy Graham crusades combined. This alarming phenomena has rapidly increased since about the mid 1990s. end quote Now, it is true that the world seems so confident and strong in the worship of their false gods. And this has, in fact, lured many away from the church in the past decades. Yet, the one true God is not only real, but He is also willing and able to answer the prayers of His people. The fact that God truly exists, however, also means that He hates idolatry and He judges sin. We are to have a true honor, fear, and love of Him, which motivates all of our behavior and informs all of our decisions. It should be the greatest possible comfort to us, to the people of God, that our holy, awesome God will never leave us, He will never forsake us. And it should be our greatest longing that all men would turn to Him in humble, loving, heartfelt repentance, worship, and obedience. Now, I would submit to you this morning that most of the de churching that has gone on has to do with nominal Christians who have realized that their fake faith is no longer the benefit they once perceived it to be, and they've cast it aside like yesterday's fashions. Yet, this winnowing of the church culture need not be a cause of alarm for the true church. We are not to be intimidated by our culture, we are not to retreat in the face of increasing hostility. We were never in this for our own comfort and security were we? We are instead to live out our faith vibrantly and powerfully as we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to a dying world. Now is the time to pray. Now is the time to press forward. We're not circling the wagons waiting for the end. We are charging into the fray, anticipating the victorious coming of our Savior. So what we'll see this morning is that the Lord God of the Bible is the one true God who is alone worthy of worship and who hears and answers his people when they cry out to him in humility and faith. The Lord God of the Bible is the one true God who alone is worthy of worship and who hears and answers his people when they cry out to him in humility and faith. There's no better way to usher in our new year than with the story of Elijah. A man of God who stood for God in a time when no one else would. Well, we too wish and desire to stand for the Lord. Now, well, I'm dropping you, i parachuting right into the middle of this story, this true historical narrative. And In chapter 17, we get the beginning of Elijah's story, so just look there for a moment. You're familiar with it, of course. There's a, a drought that comes upon the nation of Israel because God is judging them, Because of the fact that they have an evil king, King Ahab. And this was announced by Elijah in chapter 17, verse 1. And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, and this is a key throughout the entire narrative of Elijah... He's proclaiming the God who lives, the real God, as opposed to the false gods of the nations and particularly the fake God Baal, whom King Ahab has turned his entire nation towards the worship of. This is a key phrase. As the Lord God lives, Elijah is the prophet of the one true and living God. So he says, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand The second key to Elijah's ministry is that he is living out that ministry in light of the command of God. He says, I stand in. I am in the presence of God. I am doing these things because this is what God has given me to do. Elijah is a mighty man of faith. He is a powerful, even just physical figure, a big man. and wears a big leather belt, a big hairy guy, we find out. But his impressiveness is not built around his stature, it is built around the fact that he serves a living God and does everything as a result of the fact that that God has commanded him to do these things. And that's how he bursts upon the scene in front of Ahab. Right? Ahab is the worst king to that point. He is the worst king that Israel has ever had. And Israel is in the ten tribes. You remember there was a break in Israel after Solomon. Under Rehoboam, two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And then under, under Jeroboam, ten tribes, Those ten tribes began a false worship of Yahweh. Jeroboam setting up two false idols, one in Bethel and one in Dan, that were supposed to represent Yahweh because he was afraid that those ten tribes would go back to Jerusalem to worship there. So he establishes a false worship system around Yahweh. He says it's the worship of the true God, but in a false manner. Well, as that degenerates down throughout time, finally we have Ahab who marries Jezebel who is the daughter of the ruler of Sidon who is the main Baal worshipper it is the entire it is the entire tone of that land of that nation to worship Baal and Jezebel was the priestess of Baal so Ahab marries Jezebel and she converts him and he presses forth the nation into the worship of Baal the entire worship services, everything in the nation now turned over to worshiping and honoring a false god. This is from the very people whom God called to be his own, his ethnic people whom he called out to be for himself, whom he led through the Red Sea, whom he led out of Egypt, whom he established as a nation. It is this people that Ahab, who knows his heritage, knows what he is supposed to do as king, it is this people that Ahab is leading away from the one true God. And so, in chapter 17, God says, "I'm going to bring a judgment upon my people. Ahab, you have disobeyed and dishonored me, and now my people will suffer the consequences, which is a famine. And to an agrarian society, a famine was the worst thing that could happen. The crops could not grow, the cattle could not could not survive. As you see in verse 18 or chapter 18, they're going to try to find water for the cattle. About three and a half years into this famine and this this lack of rain." Because the cattle aren't going to be able to survive any longer. So God is judging his people. He brings forth the nature of that judgment through Elijah. And Elijah, after he makes this announcement in chapter 17, you know the narrative. He then immediately hides himself from Ahab. Because he told Ahab, look, this rain will not come back upon the earth until I say. So of course, Ahab is looking for Elijah to force him to bring about the prophetic word. So Elijah hides himself. First, he goes to a brook where he is fed by ravens. Then he goes actually outside of Israel to a widow in a place called Zarephath, which actually was the home region of Jezebel. It was the center of Baal worship. So he hides in the center of Baal worship. And then, three and a half years later, he bursts upon the scene once again in chapter 18. After Ahab has spent his time searching all the surrounding nations to try to find him, now Ahab, under God's direction, Elijah, under God's direction, reveals himself to Ahab. And we will study this narrative, really verses 16 through 40, right, under the following points. Elijah confronts Ahab, Elijah confronts the people, Elijah challenges the prophets, Elijah calls upon the Lord, and Elijah judges the prophets. Well, we've got a lot of work to do if you're looking at your outline. So let's jump into this narrative and really use it as an opportunity to see how God encourages and really strengthens his prophet, the one who speaks for him, so that his people would hear a true message and turn back to him. So Elijah first confronts the king. He confronts Ahab. And that's in verse 16. So Obadiah, this really faithful man in Ahab's court, Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah, I'll bet. I mean, he's been looking for Elijah for three and a half years. Obadiah comes and says, I found him. Ahab makes a beeline for him. Because again, this is his ticket out. Ahab's the king. His people are dying. They are starving. And this false god that he's told him to serve, remember, the god Baal, is the god of the storm, the god of the rain, the god of the lightning and thunder and the crops. And this god has shown himself to be impotent for three and a half years. So I was very anxious that we would have some rain once again so that he can go back to his Baal worship and point the people to a god who is actually accomplishing something. So he certainly rushes forward to meet Ahab, or excuse me, to meet Elijah. Verse 17, then when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is this you, you troubler of Israel? So on our outline, we have Elijah confronts Ahab, and the first thing that happens is that Ahab accuses Elijah. This is so typical. Here you have a man, a king, who knows the one true God, who knows the reality of who God is, who knows that literally he's supposed to have a copy of the Word of God that he reads every day and, who, and challenges and calls the people to follow that Word, he is instead turned away to Baal. And the first thing that he does when he meets a prophet of the true God is accuse the prophet of causing the problems. This is what unbelievers always do they accuse us. Believers, those who are seeking this love and serve God, the one true God who really exists, they accuse Christians of causing all the problems. Look at the, look at the turn in our country. Look at the turn in our world. If you Christians would just get with the picture, if you would just get on the right side of history, if you would stop being bigots and haters and lacking in love, if you would stop holding to a literal grammatical interpretation of Scripture. See, this isn't just a call from our culture. This is a call from our Christian culture. Our believing culture or our nominal Christian culture is calling us to stop holding so tightly to the Bible, to stop burying our heads in the sand, as it were, and just following Scripture. This is what unbelievers always do. You're the problem. And they try to intimidate and cow true believers. And I tell you, we will not stand for this. Elijah turns this immediately around. I love this. Now, as we will see... Elijah, although, again, as I said, powerful, strong figure, Elijah is a humble man who has one passion, to see God honored by his people finding their full satisfaction and joy in him. This is what Elijah wants. Don't make a mistake. Don't think he's just some powerful, thundering figure out for his own gain and his own benefit to somehow be heralded by Sunday schools throughout the world. Elijah loves God. Elijah has a reverent view of and worship of God. And he loves these people. And so he hates anything which gets in the way of that. And that's what we do. We don't just turn back our, turn this back around on our culture because we're arrogant, foolish. We're going to put it back in their face because nobody's going to tell us what to do. We turn it back on our culture because they're wrong and because the fact that they are wrong is leading to their eternal death. That's the problem. It's not just that they're wrong. That they're dying, and they are not properly honoring the God who created them, and we hate both of those things. We hate the fact that God is not being honored, and we hate the fact that people are dying and going to hell. So Elijah will uh, not—Elijah will not have this. You trouble of Israel. He immediately turns it back on him, and Elijah accuses Ahab. And we will do this to our culture all day long. We are not the problem. Yes, Christians sin. Yes, the church fails. Yes, we have our own problems. But our worship of God is not the problem. So look back into our text as Elijah turns this immediately around. He says, have, he, he said, I have not troubled Israel, but you. And your father's house, all the way back. Every king of Israel is bad. They've all gotten worse. Jeroboam started this with this false worship of the true God, then adding in these false gods. And Elijah says, look, no, you're the problem. In fact, the legacy of this kingship is the problem. You were supposed to have changed things. You were supposed to serve a living God. You are the problem. What is the issue? You are the problem because you are a nasty, bad guy. No. It says, you are the problem. You are the troubler. Why? Because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. There's the issue. You see, the true problem, anyone is actually a troubler. You're a troubler of your family, a troubler of this church, a troubler of this nation, a troubler of this world. If you refuse to obey the commands of God because you do not worship him. It's not just simply obedience to his commands, it's a true worship of the one true God out of a love and, and delight in that God. So Elijah accuses Ahab and says, no, you have troubled Israel. You, the king, who are supposed to obey every command of God, to know all that had been written down in the prophets before you, to lead Israel carefully to honor and to love and to fear God, you are troubling Israel because you have forsaken his word the God who called you out, the God who set you apart. You are rejecting His commandments, and you have followed the Baals. That is, you have forsaken God's worship. You are serving a false God, and therefore you are walking away from the commandments of God. And these two things always go hand in hand. If you don't worship God, you certainly aren't going to follow His commandments. And if you stop following the things He's given you to do, you will slowly but surely cease to worship God. They go hand in hand, and that is what has happened we will not hear from our culture that we are causing the problem we will turn this back immediately and say no the problem is that you aren't obeying the one true god first to our christian culture remember this is as we move this into new testament context we're not a nation christians are not a national entity We are are an organism that is a family, and we call not just our nation, but the entire world, every individual in the world, we call back to a true knowledge of God. We're going to have to think beyond the United States. Not if we're calling our nation back to serve God once again. We are calling everyone in the world to serve God individually because they must bend the knee to Him. That's how we view this in Christian terms, and that begins with our own people. That begins with the church. The first call is to the church as a structure to turn back to God, then moving out into the individuals of the world, in our community, in our country, and around the world. This world has forsaken the worship of God. They have forsaken the commandments of God, and therefore they are bringing trouble. They are bringing the judgment of God. They are bringing the the right discipline of God down upon them. And so we long to call our culture, to call our people, to call those around us back to a proper worship of the true God through a heartfelt, loving, fearful obedience to His commands. The greatest trouble you could bring your church, your family, or your society is to forsake the obedience of God's Word. Well, they tell you you're causing trouble by doing everything else. You're not living out this justice or doing these things or, or living according to these particular mandates that they will give you. But that is not the trouble. The trouble is when we don't obey. And when we don't obey because we do not love and honor the God who gave us these commandments. He's worthy. That's the greatest trouble you could ever bring. And Ahab should have known better. He did know better. We know better. We're the church. We have his word. We have his spirit. We know better. And yes, we fail and fall, but this is our one calling, to obey out of a delighted, loving, fearful heart of worship. Well, Elijah commands Ahab. Now, number three, Elijah commands Ahab. So he turns this around. Don't tell me what to do. I'm the prophet of God. And this is appropriate in this context because the prophets were to call the kings back into right behavior. That was their job. They were to call the kings, call the people back into the service of God. So Elijah commands Ahab, the king. and He says this. He says, now send and gather the people. So this is verse 19. Send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel together with 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Well, I know what your wife is doing. She's got her own personal band of 450 prophets. You've got four, or 450 prophets of Baal, who was the main storm god, the god of virility, the god of fertility. Then you have Asherah, who would have been known as his consort in this pantheon of gods. She would have been his, his, uh, his prostitute wife, essentially, and, and consorting with her to bring about the fertility that would happen in the land. This is how these, these pantheons worked. And so there was all this evil worship that went on in light of, of this immorality, this debauchery that went on. The gods represented it, and then the people lived it out. And that's how they worshipped this god all over. There were these Asherah poles where they would commit lewd acts of, of immorality in order to bring about what they desired from their god, Baal consorting with Asherah. That's the kind of gods they were serving. Israel, the people of God who had been called to serve him only. Because I know who's there. Bring them all. Bring every one of those prophets, and you come as well, and bring every one of the people of Israel. We are having a national throwdown. But again, please don't misunderstand. Elijah's not flaunting his power or his purposes. He wants to demonstrate to the people the reality of the God that they are rejecting. They've forgotten. They have thrown their lot in with Baal. And so it is Elijah's desire to show them the reality of the one true God, the false nature of the God they are serving, so that they will turn back. Not to show off, not to make a good Sunday school class, but that he would demonstrate to his own people, whom he loved, that they needed to continue. They needed to turn back to serving the God that he loved. So he says, bring them all. Bring the people. Bring the prophets. And bring them to Mount Carmel, which was really Baal territory. What you will see is that Elijah here does everything possible to give every advantage to Baal. He wants to be sure that no one can blame him of hedging the bed, of, of, of stacking the deck. So he goes to Baal's Bluff, this might be called. It's actually mentioned in history as a place where Baal was worshiped. There had been an altar of God, as we will see, that had been torn down and a shrine to Baal put on top of it. So he says, look, Let's go to the prominent Baal worship, uh, Baal shrine in this territory up on a mountain where everybody can see. We'll go and you bring all the prophets there and all the people there right into his territory and bring all of the people, all of those who are responsible for worshiping him and come yourself, everybody. So bring the prophets, bring the people. He commands Ahab. Well, Ahab is a weak-willed ruler, but I think also Ahab wants to get this done He's like, no problem. I'll bring everybody. We'll demonstrate that you are weak and worthless and puny. You're just one guy. We'll triumph over you. We'll do that as, you know, in front of everyone else. You will lose your credibility. God will lose his credibility and Baal will win. Ahab seems to be sure that that's what's going to happen, which is why he agrees to this. I'll take the home field advantage. I'll take all of the players and we're going to win the game because I believe that I'm serving the right God. Big mistake, as we will see. B, Elijah confronts the people. This is the real purpose. This is why Elijah is here. He's going to confront the prophets, but his real purpose is to confront the people, God's people, and turn that they would turn back to him. So verse 20, Ahab sent a messenger or message among all the sons of Israel and brought all the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and said, So here's the real purpose. So all these people are there it would appear that perhaps only the 450 prophets of Baal showed up and that Jezebel kept her, kept her prophets back because it says that he kills 450. All right? So probably only the prophets of Baal come. Jezebel is waiting in the wings, and that's for next week. All right? we'll, we'll, we'll find out what she's going to do. But here, these 450 prophets, the king himself, his entourage, his court, all the people show up. Elijah walks up on this mountain, and he gathers the people. He draws close to them doesn't talk to the prophets first. He goes and says, look, here, here's the message for you, the people. And this is what he says. So he confronts the people and he tells them, challenges them, choose whom you will follow. Verse 21, Elijah came near to all the people. And he said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. See, the people are wavering back and forth. And actually... As, we, as you know practically, to ride the fence in the service of God to waver back and forth is really to not serve God. So if you're on the fence, you're serving other gods, not the true one, because God calls for your total devotion, your total worship, and your complete honor. Don't fool yourself. If you're sitting on the fence, you're not kind of serving God and kind of serving someone else yourself. You're just serving you. By staying on the fence, that's what you're doing. And Elijah's calling the people out. They're already serving Baal. That's why they're there. They've been serving him. They've been following after what Ahab has said. But, but, they, they, they're aware of the true God, and they'll be happy to throw in their lot with whoever is most powerful. That's how the people work. Well, we were the people of God, but now Baal showed up, and he was doing well. But all of a sudden, Baal's not doing so well. Three and a half years in, and we're not, we don't have any rain. Maybe we, maybe we should turn back to the real God. Maybe he'll give us what we want. See, this is why the people worship. You must understand this. People worship the idols that will give them what they want, and it doesn't matter what, that is, which idol. As long as the people, that is, unbelievers, will get what they want, they will serve any God. Believers don't act like that. We serve the one true God. But every unbeliever is simply a slave to the things that they desire. Comfort, security, Purpose, power, passion, possessions, you name it, they're a slave to those things and they will serve whichever God will give them the best chance, they think, to get that. And that's how the people of Israel are here. They're hedging their bet. Now, notice what they do. See, the people are cagey. This is how, again, this is how unbelievers operate. They answered him not a word. Why? Because it hasn't played out yet. So when they figure out who's the stronger God, who's the God that's going to win in this little contest here, then they'll throw their lot over there. Never trust the masses. Never trust the opinions of people who waver back and forth to simply get what they want. And again, that, that might be the might have the most noble of aspirations on it. Want, I want power so I can help people. I want I want money so I can give things to people. It's still what they want. That thing which brings the greatest perceived benefit to any unbeliever is that which they worship. That's what the people are all about. Baal, he was doing okay, so we turned away from God. Eh, He's not doing so well, so what do you got for us? Show us who's most powerful, and we'll pick that God. This is what the world's looking for. Who's going to be the most powerful God? So, he he says, choose whom you will follow. Follow the one true God. Jeremiah 2.13 represents where the people are. It says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, a fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns who can hold no water. They've turned away from the real God to serve a false God who actually can't provide them what they actually need. That's the travesty. Oh, there might be rain that comes upon the earth and certain external things that they get, but they cannot. It is impossible for any man apart from God to find true satisfaction. It's impossible. He won't let you do it. You cannot because that's not how you were built. So they've they've neglected God to hew out cisterns that can hold no water. The people will follow the winner. Now, you need to understand that the case for Baal worship is strong. As in our society today, the case for the worship of false gods is strong. Think about this. If you are in Israel, those in power sanctioned the worship of Baal. Everybody that had power said, this is what you ought to be doing and exerted their power to force people to do it. Right? That's what's going on. Tradition and history commended it. Look, Baal worship has a long history. People in this land, and this region, have been worshiping Baal forever. So, so it's got history behind it. There are 850 false prophets who proclaimed it. And that's pretty strong, 850 in the kingdom. There's probably also, in Ahab's court, who didn't come to this particular festival, 400 prophets who served the false Yahweh. That is, prophets of the two two statues, the the two bulls that were set up at Bethal and Dan. We learn that later on in this narrative, that Ahab keeps in his court 400 false prophets of Yahweh, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. He's got all his bases covered, but they're all false gods. 1,250 prophets all proclaiming a false god. That's pretty strong. Who's going to stand against that tide? How many prophets are proclaiming the real god? One. Actually, there's more, right? Obadiah saved 100 of them. We'll learn later on there's 7,000 people who haven't bent the knee to Baal. But right now, in front of everyone else, there is one prophet proclaiming the true God. The relevance and felt needs of the people had been being met by this God. This God claimed to meet those. The sensual desires of the people were met by this worship. They loved this kind of worship. They could get involved in any kind of sexual debauchery that they wanted in the name of the worship of their God. What does that sound like? Our society. Not just American society. Please get past that. That is every society that worships sexuality and worships those passions and pleasures. We're not somehow uniquely debauched in that way. In fact, we're late to the table when it comes to a lot of those things. The world has abandoned itself to a sexual debauchery which feeds their passions because it's their idol. Uh, Baal gave them all of that sexual passion, provided their felt needs, was, was, had all kinds of prophets and institutions set up for it, and had the very power structure of the country developed around it. There was every reason to worship Baal except one thing he's fake. Absolutely 100% false. There are no other gods. Not one. Not one. Everything else is a vain imagining of the people. So they agree to this public contest. Right? So they, he, he says, choose whom you will follow, and the people agree. He says, agree to this public contest. So he says, verse 23 now let them give us two oxen let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood Put no fire under it i will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood and i will put and and i will not put a fire under it then you call on the name of your god and i will call on the name of the lord and the god who answers by fire he's god <laughs> slam dunk for baal he's he's the god of the storm he's the god who brings the lightning so why don't why don't you pick something like send you know, send water all right Well, I guess Baal could have done that too. Some other thing. No, he picks the thing which is in Baal's wheelhouse. Everything. We're on your mountain with your people, your prophets, and your God. All he's got to do is light a little fire. Send a little lightning, zap that thing, and we're all done. right? So everything is stacked in Baal's favor, and everyone is anticipating an easy win for Team Baal. So, what do the people say? I love this. Look, look at the end of verse 24. Look in your text. They say, that's a great idea. <laughs> I mean, that's perfect. right? well, we'll get what we want. This, you know, showing a little fire here. That should be easy for Baal to do. You can just imagine Ahab going, Man, we got this one. Baal's gonna easily be able to do this. My, my prophet should be able to take care of this one easily. So they agree to this public contest. Now, no, notice what Elijah says. Verse 25, so Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it for you are many. Look back up in verse 22. I alone am left of the prophet of the Lord and Baal's prophets are 450. Again, there were more prophets of God, but very few. And he's the only one standing there. So says, look, like the whole thing is stacked in your behavior, in your favor. And so you get to go first, but this is because... Elijah is completely unintimidated. Why? Because he's strong and powerful and self-confident and he scores high on whatever enneagram scale that would be or whatever it is. No, because he knows there's only one true God. He has been spoken to by the one true God. He serves the living God of Israel. He knows that every other God is fake. And I submit to you this morning that you stand in the same place. There's no need to waver about other gods. You have 66 books that tell you there is one true God. You have 66 books that tell you, in this one book, that tell you that there is one God alone and that every other God is fake. What else do you need? What more could I do to convince you? Nothing. If an angel showed up out of heaven, it would be less convincing than the 66 books of Scripture bound up in the canon of Scripture. You have more than Elijah ever had. Why is our confidence less than Elijah's? This is the God who came and died for you. We just celebrated the very coming of our Savior this entire time. This is the God you believe. You already believe this. I don't have to convince the vast majority of you. But has your faith begun to waver? You need to understand that one person who believes what is true trumps a billion people who believe what is false. One person who believes the truth. Not believes in your invention, not believes in your myth, not believes in some version of Christianity that you want to invent, but believes in the real God of the real Bible properly interpreted. You are always right, always, if there's one of you. Let's boil it down to one here in Israel, at least visibly, a visible presence saying, Guess who's right? Elijah. Never forget that. God is not intimidated or impressed by numbers. Truth does not become truth by consensus, ever. Now, don't go finding weird things to believe. Well, if one person believes it, I should believe that. That's not the point. We're not looking to be fewer people. We're not looking to be the only ones who believe. But if there is only one, and you are backed up by the truth of Scripture and you stand your ground, and we in this nation and in this world and in this culture, we will stand our ground because we didn't invent this, and I didn't come up with it, and you didn't come here this Sunday morning because I had some new religion that you were going to follow or that I'm particularly fiery in my presentation or, or erudite in my speaking. You didn't come here for that. You came here because we believe one thing, and this is what we proclaim, and this is what we live. That's why you came. And you shouldn't be here for any other reason. And that's why the church exists. Elijah knew that. God has spoken to me. had the word of God. And he had the confidence to know that there was one true God. So he was not intimidated. That's the only thing that will keep you from intimidation. You invent your own little system. Do your own little thing. Believe your own little brand of something. Give it up. You might as well believe what more people believe than you. But if you believe the truth, never give it up. Well... Verse 25 again, he says, choose the ox for yourself. So here we are in Elijah challenging the prophets. So he turns from the people who said, hey, that's a great idea. Um, Baal should be able to solve this one. We'll be validated. We'll get our rain back or whatever. And we'll get rid of this pesky prophet. So now he turns to the prophets. Choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it for you are many. And, on the name of, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. Again, to so kick off the coin toss, you receive right? You, you get to start. There's more of you, so go ahead and bring it on, and let's see what happens. So, I'm giving you first dibs. If your God shows up, we're done, right? This little contest is over, so everything is given to you. So, then they took the ox. So, this is the prophet's procedure. They took it. They put it on the altar. It says, look, just don't put any fire under it. Don't, no, no shenanigans here. They took the ox, which was given them. They prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, from nine o'clock until twelve, they said this, O Baal, answer us. Keyword in the text, you need a God who will answer you. You can invent all the gods you want. You can pray to all the gods you want. You can come up with all the systems you want. If your God can't answer, he's fake. If he can't actually provide a true answer for you, he's false. Give him up. We don't believe in a fake religion where we just pray to God and invent things on our own and, and pretend that things have happened. We pray to a God who actually answers because he's real and he's the only one that can. We're not faking it. It's a two-way street. We pray to God. He answers. And if he doesn't answer, we're fools, fools. We pray to an empty sky to get to invent a religion of our own and we get nothing in return. That's the worship of Baal. We, we, we serve a God who sent us son. We serve a God who gave His Word. We serve a God who gave us His Spirit, who regularly, daily, moment by moment, responds to our prayers. He's a real God who really answers. So they call. They say, oh, they'll answer us. But mark this in your text, verse 26. There was no voice, and no one answered. Why? Because there's no one there. These guys are sincere. The prophets appeal They believe this to be true. They're crying out for three hours, Baal answer us, Baal answer us, over and over, chanting mantras, everything. They believe in Baal, as it were. Guys, don't, don't make a mistake. The world believes in its idols. They're just waiting to turn around and hear about the living God. They're absolutely convinced that their idols are real because their whole life is developed around following them. They're blinded because of sin. They believe these things to be true. Why does that surprise you? When the world fires back and he says, your gods are ridiculous and our gods are true, we go, oh, we get all worried about that. Look how sincere they are. Sincerely being wrong is of no benefit whatsoever. But they believe it. These prophets believed it. They were sure they were going to get something. They wouldn't have been. They didn't light the fire. They didn't try to make a trick out of this. Right, and they have smoke and mirrors where some, they thought Baal would answer them. How pathetic. And I, say that with, I, mean, I say that with the greatest compassion. How, how terrible they've given their whole lives to this fake God, and when it comes to a throwdown, their God doesn't answer them. And by the way, more and more and more in this world, as this world moves down into darkness, the people will be appealing to their gods, and what are they going to find? Their gods will not answer because they don't exist. We have a God that does. And so we're going to proclaim that God. Our God really answers. He actually is real. It came about at noon. So the prophet's appeal, the prophet's response, no voice, no one answers. The prophet's sincerity, number four, they leapt about the altar. They were all in. They were all in. They were leaping and dancing about this thing. And it only gets worse. So this is the prophet's mocking. It came about at noon that Elijah mocked them. Why? We need to be careful here. Right? We need to be careful that our tone overall doesn't become mocking. It is interesting, Elijah's mocking the right people. He's, he's mocking the leaders of this religion. He's not mocking the people. He's mocking the people that are actually leading the people astray into a false religion and are so sincere. I think there's a place for this. When we look at the world and we say, what is that? Uh, you, you, how well is you are your gods doing? How well have they done for the past two thousand years of history? Your gods, which have led to incredible debauchery and harm within this world. Oh, everybody blames Christianity for that. It's only it's only a so-called Christianity wrongly followed that ever has led to problems. Only that, not Christianity truly according to the principles of Scripture. It's perversions of it that have caused the problem, many of them, but like, like the non-perversions of Scripture, people have done better, as in rejecting Scripture, atheism, we'll trace that through history, not doing, their gods are not doing any better, in fact, there's a right to say, he says to them, call out with a loud voice, get louder, I mean, he's a god, he's gotta be there somewhere, so either he's occupied or gone aside or on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be wakened right? He's somewhere else. The gone aside is probably, he's, he's in the bathroom. He, he's, he's busy, all right? This is a mocking tone, but there is a purposefulness to this. If he's really God, why can't he hear you? Let's invent a reason why he might not be responding to you. So he gives him all the reasons. It might be this, might be this. He's just going to have to scream a little louder. Maybe that'll get his attention because that's the gods of the world. They just demand what? More Be louder in your appeals. Give me more of your life. Do more of your evil stuff. Pour that out and I'll respond to you. But they never will because they don't exist. So the prophets ramp it up. So they cried with a loud voice. They cut themselves, verse 28, according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. The picture is of a bloody mess as they cut themselves and, and the blood pours out and falls upon the ground and maybe falls upon the altar says when midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. This is a special word. It's a religious word. They went into a religious trance, like lunatics screaming and yelling. Please hear me. God needs none of that. A real God doesn't need you to scream louder. A real God can hear you anywhere you are at any time in the quietest of voices. It doesn't need some kind of program. You need to work yourself up and yell and scream. Just even the Christian church, as it turns itself over to this kind of ridiculous worship, is its insanity. God does not need you to jump and dance around as somehow that will draw his attention. He already knows your heart. He lives inside of it. And when you are alone, on your knees, in your bedroom, praying quietly, he hears every word. It's not that we don't sing and rejoice in him and worship him as the Bible prescribes for us. We do that. That's right and good. But not some kind of weird frenzy where we dance around and somehow think and yell and scream as though somehow that show of emotion will cause God to respond to us. He doesn't need it and he doesn't ask for it. The gods of this world do. Gotta give it all. And you've got to impress them with your visible show. Well, in this case, it has no effect because there's no God. Notice the effect of this. Underline this in your Bible, but there was no voice. No one answered. And the ultimate insult, no one even paid attention. Uh, no one, because there's no one there. You yell to the silence, you get nothing. You get no attention at all. This, these are the gods of the world. These are the things they're appealing to there's the greatest pity in our hearts. I don't mean condescending pity like these are foolish and one such stupid people. Just simply people that are, are blinded by a false by false gods who pay no attention to them even though they think that they are. And they call you to turn your life over to that? We will not be changed. We will not be moved in this. Why would we throw our lives away for gods who don't even pay attention? They can't. They don't exist. So the prophet's mocking, the prophet's frenzy, the prophet's absolute failure. So many people today trying to worship God with yelling and screaming in emotional frenzy. Dale Davis wrote an excellent commentary. You should pick it up, the believer's commentary on 1 Kings. He said, God is a God for whom activity is of no consequence. Well, Elijah calls upon the Lord. Let's see the contrast. Note the difference a true prophet of the Lord versus these false prophets acting according to the dictates of their God. At the time, oh, uh, verse 33. No, excuse me, all the way back up to verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me, come near to me. So first, again, this is what it's been all about. He addresses the people. So all the people came near, they all draw close. He said, look, I want you to see that there's, I'm not doing anything here. No, I'm not no faking. You know, I'm not lighting the fire behind your back. I am on my my tinderbox back here. A couple of my cronies over here are going to light the fire. I want you all to come close because I want you to see this is real. Also, they need to come close so they can hear him pray because he's not going to scream and he's not going to jump about and he's not going to have some kind of display. He's just going to pray to God and they need to hear that he is praying. So just look, come closer. Tighten up, people, to see what's going to happen. So the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Apparently, on this mountain, there was an altar. The altar was supposed to be 12 stones stacked up, not cemented together, uh, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And you can almost hear the clicking sound as he takes each rock and places it. One tribe of Israel, two tribes of Israel, and they're all there, all of them who have disobeyed and dishonored God. And he's saying, look, we're going to put this back together. There's only one way this is really gonna be true if we will worship God. At the end of the altar, at the end of putting everything back together is the worship of the true God. 12 stones, <laughs> puts them all back together. All the people who wanted them close to see and to hear. So he puts this altar back together. Then he says to, to make this even more, to, to set the stage even more. And by the way, there's a, a comment at the end of verse 31. It says, he took the twelve stones according to the twelve tribes of uh, the tribes of the sons of Israel, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, "Israel shall be your name, the, the, the name of God given to them." There's a the the writer of this piece says, "Look, this is who Israel is really supposed to be." He gives us a a divine commentary here. So. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two measures of seed. He arranged the wood and cut the oxen pieces and laid it on the wood. He said, fill four pitchers with water, pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. They did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. The water flowed. Twelve stones, each one for a tribe of Israel. Twelve times water is poured. Four jars, three times, twelve times. One for every, na- every tribe again. One tribe, another Pitcher of water, another pitcher of water. Once again, just showing them their unfaithfulness in visual form. So everything is drenched. There, This is water flowed. There an, any way that an accidental spark will make this happen. If God is not real, nothing will happen. Only if he is real will something happen. Elijah has set that up perfectly. So he addressed the people. He repairs the altar. He prepares the sacrifice. And then he prays. At the end of the evening, at the offering of the evening, sacrifice. At the time, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O oh Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. First, he honors God. O oh, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, the one who kept faith to Abraham and Isaac, to Jacob, who built a great nation, who led them out of Egypt, who, who conquered the land on their behalf and provided them with their kings, who has given them everything in prayer and before the people. What does he first do? He does not honor himself He does not promote himself. He does not jump up and down and yell and scream. He says, oh, God, God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He hallows God. This is what we do. We pray and we honor God because it is he who deserves all honor, not we. He says, oh, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel. This is what Elijah longed for. He wanted his own people to know and to serve and to honor their God. First we call to our church. First we call to the church in general that you would know your God. You are his people. You are to respond to him. And then we would call to all of whom are who are the created sons of God. Not the relational sons of God, but all have been created by him. And we call on all who have been given life and breath by a holy God to respond to their creator, that they would know that he is God, that they would have a right relationship with him, that they would know. So this is, he honors God and he humbles himself, that you are God. So the focus is on God and that I am your servant and I have done these things by your word. He humbles himself. Elijah gives himself one title, not great, mighty, titan prophet of Israel, that they would know that I'm your servant. This is our title. This is who Grace Community Church is. This is who you are. This is the one title you deserve and desire above all others, that you are a bond servant of the holy God. I don't care what your title is at work doesn't matter to me how impressive you are in other arenas or how, how little you are impressive. If you change diapers, which many of you do all day and clean the house, that is still not your title. Your title is servant of the living God. No matter how impressive in the eyes of the world or how worthless in the eyes of the world, there's one thing that magnifies your position, and that is only if you are the servant of the living God. That's who we are. That's who we are as a church. We're not impressive in and of ourselves. Look at our programs, look at our stuff, look at our people, look at our new building we're going to build. And we, we look at one thing. We are the servants of the living God. And most importantly, I have done all these things at your Word. There's the issue. We're not not operators on our own. We don't make up the worship of God. We don't design our own religion. We don't tell people, you ought to do this because we as Grace Community Church and I as some kind of pastor tell you or we the elders say, you ought to do this. All this is done according to the Word of God and if it isn't, it's worthless and we aren't His servants. We're only His servants if we obey His Word. Elijah says, look, I am nothing I want everyone to know that you, God, are great, that I serve you, and all this is done according to your word. So he appeals to the Lord. Notice what he wants the Lord to do. Answer me, O Lord. So now he says the same words that they said to Baal. O Baal, answer us. They got no answer. Now he says this. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. Why? That this people may know. They know what? That you, O Lord, are God. For the people to be convinced, so that he appeals to the Lord, that the people would be convinced that he is God, and that the people would be converted, and that you have turned their hearts back again. He calls for the work that only God can do, which is that God would change their hearts. This is what he is praying for. This is what he lives for. This is what we live for. The conversion of people that they would know their God, that their hearts would be changed to serve and to honor Him, and we cry out that God would do this, and that we would be faithful, that He would use us to accomplish this task. This is our one task. Everyone says you're weird because you've given all of your life to simply follow this God and serve Him and honor Him. You've done the one right thing. Yes, your life is consumed with God. Yes, everything you do in work and in family, at home, and in play is all done in light of the greatness of your God. That's not weird. It's not cultish. It's not fanatical. It's Christian. It's what Christians do. You are totally different than every other person who lives in this world who doesn't know God. You're totally different. You are consumed with God because he's worth it. And because as you are, others will be drawn to him. He wants the people to be converted. He, he receives a response. This is so sweet. No dancing, no singing, no jumping up and down, no doing cartwheels, no cutting himself, no yelling and screaming. A simple prayer, God, I want the people to know you. I want them to know I'm your servant. I want them to know this is by your word. Would you please change their hearts? And what happened? The fire fell. Visible external work of God here. God does not always work in this way. In fact, rarely does He. We're going to see the turn next week where God actually says, you know what? I'm not going to work through that powerful external working. I'm not actually going to change the people's hearts right now. I'm going to do that later through a different means. That's for next week. You're going to have to come back. But He is the real God, and He really does answer here because He is making it very clear. You might say, well, why doesn't He show us like this? Did He not send His son? Do you not believe that, that his son actually came to earth? Did you not send his spirit to come and live inside your heart? Did you he not actually do that? What other fire do you need? You have real evidence of this reality. It comes, vir- it comes visibly here. The fire fell, and when God sends the fire, he sends it completely. It consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water which was in the trench. I mean, you couldn't make a movie that would do this. Nothing left but smoking rubble. Not even rubble. Nothing left. A smoking hole in the ground. No water, no sacrifice, no stones. Nothing. Gone. This is the power of God. I mean, it's just a a simple, easy thing in the eyes of the God who created the universe with a word. Like, he cannot take out pieces of his universe with some fire. Like, Baal is some because he can send some lightning and maybe bring a few crops. This is the God who created the world, and he eliminates this sacrifice with a single thought. It's gone. Well, the people respond. Verse 39, all of the people saw, they fell on their faces, and they said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Guess what? It's external only but they don't have any choice. They're stuck. The prophets of Baal are bleeding on the ground over here with a sacrifice that's still there. Elijah is standing quietly by smoking a smoking hole in the ground, and they're like, "Uh uh-oh. We we cast in with the wrong lot. So so they they cry out visibly. They fall on their faces visibly because they don't have any choice, but it's a one-day revival, as we will see. It's, It's not real in the heart. It is very rare that external demonstrations, even of the real power of God, turn people to God for real. We'll see that God will use another means. But now we need to see a final thought here. It's really important. So the people do respond. So Elijah receives a response. The Lord responds. The people respond. And finally, here Elijah judges the prophets. Don't miss the end of this story. Then Elijah said, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. Notice he says prophets of Baal. It was probably only them, 450. He kills them all. Like, oh, see, there it is. There's nasty religion. They see they're killing people. What was the penalty for any false prophet in Israel? God's own penalty. What was the penalty for those that would lead the people away from God? It was instant death. That was prescribed, it was lawful, it was right. Why is it right? Because anyone who leads other people away from the living God is leading people to eternal hell. There is no worse occupation than to lead people away from God. Does God have the right to judge anyone at any time and bring them to their eternal condemnation? He does. He's God, and he brings this judgment upon them temporally, but also eternally at this moment. Because God does this all the time. There are people going unto death every second of every day for the rest of history. God is bringing them to their eternal judgment. It is his right. It is what he does. This is not strange, unusual, or weird. He brings the proper judgment for the proper crime, which is to refuse to bend the knee to God. Every person ever born will stand before a holy God, whether he brings them unto death before this or then, and they will go away into eternal hell if they have not trusted in God in our time through Jesus Christ. They will. This punishment will come upon all. Don't be shocked by this. Don't use this as your reason to turn away from religion, the Christian religion. Use this as your reason to turn to it. Elijah is bringing the proper punishment as given by the word of god and god may bring his creatures to their own end and he will so the questions are this are you in any way a troubler of your family of this church of 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 your home of this country of by not obeying the commands of god and pursuing the worship of god is there any way in which you are wavering between two opinions trying to ride the fence in the christian life but mainly just serving yourself? Are you intimidated by the culture, lacking faith in the one true God and wavering in your conviction to fully serve and honor the Lord? Is there any area in which you believe something that is contrary to Scripture and yet are sure that your sincerity and fervency in believing it somehow make it true? Because doesn't no matter how sincere the prophets of Baal were, your sincere faith makes nothing true. God exists first, and you put faith in Him because He strengthens you to do that. You don't have faith that makes God exist. That's utter foolishness. Your faith brings nothing into existence. Your faith can only be in that which already exists. And it is God who brings that faith to you. It is God who strengthens that faith in you. Do you joyfully, sincerely, reverently, consistently fall on your knees, declaring that the Lord is God? Then get up off of your knees and serve him in a manner consistent with your profession. That's the right thing. Most of you are. You are doing what is right. Rejoice. Delight. But if that isn't you, this is the year to bend the knee. You serve a no God. You serve a God who will only lead to your destruction. He's not paying attention because he doesn't exist. Bend the knee to the real God and find this year to be a delightful service of Yahweh. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the truths of your word that we celebrate so joyfully. Father, I pray that in this new year, this coming year, that we would rejoice in you, that we would serve you, that we would, we, we would find courage and strength to stand for you, not, not for ourselves. Not to promote who we are, but to promote your greatness and to promote the best, the, the, the thriving, the spiritual flourishing of people that they would spend eternity with you not being punished by you. In your precious name, Lord Jesus, amen.